1: Conspiracy
2: Show with Richard Serrick from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Well, how do, how do? Welcome to the broadcast. Hope you'll stay with us for the duration. And uh, once again, welcome new affiliate WESB News Radio 1490, Bradford, Pennsylvania. News Radio 1490. Good to have you aboard. That is, uh, for those keeping score, uh, affiliate number 26 in the Conspiracy Show family. All right. Keep them coming. Keep them coming. Great uh, great job to uh, uh, Chris Whitting and all the gang down in uh, Chicago at uh, Syndication Networks. All right. Uh, I want to draw your attention to the website where I've uh, posted some interesting uh, stories. I think I mentioned last week, uh, this one is still up there if you didn't get a chance to read it. Your D-Link router may have a back door. Uh, so, again, Tim, I defer to you uh, You, my, uh, since I'm such a, a techno-peasant. When we're talking about a D-Link router, that would be for your wireless Internet in your home, right? Well, apparently there is a backdoor uh, built into that. What doesn't have a backdoor these days? Uh, my website was just hacked uh, a couple of days ago just as uh, I was on the phone with uh, – or on the email with uh, Victor Vigiani, and we were putting tonight's uh, uh, show together and next week's show together. And uh, just when I was about to post some very important information on the website, it was hijacked, which has happened only uh, twice, I would say, in the last uh, seven, eight, nine years. And uh, I uh, contacted my web host, and he said, you've got to update your Joomla I'm not speaking Swahili. Your Joomla <laughs> is, a, uh, uh, is a, um, a website design program, I guess. Anyway, I have a very old uh, – maybe I shouldn't be broadcasting out there to all the, uh, the hijackers, uh, the, uh, the hackers. Anyway, uh, I've got to update my Joomla, he, so, he, te- he said to me. And I said, I beg your pardon. Update your Joomla. Uh, anyway, it has too many back doors, he said. And uh, recently, there was a um, a story going sort of viral on the internet about cell phones. And if you received a a call from some eight seven seven number or something, it might be the NSA. Uh, and if they call you and you connect with that call, you've given them a back door into your cell phone. It gives a whole new meaning to uh, Jim Morrison and the Doors: "I'm your back door man." Uh, anyway, your D-Link router may be a back may have a backdoor that's posted on the internet or on my website rather, com, along with 17 survival skills everyone should learn. Yes, folks, it's getting uh later than you think. Time to learn how to grow your own tomatoes, raise and skin your own rabbits, uh and uh I guess I don't know, learn how to make your own uh, candles. Uh so that's up there as well and This one uh, I'll draw your attention to as well. What does the NSA know about the UFO cover-up? Wow. Well, we're going to delve into that a little bit, I think, tonight. And uh, we're going to do so ably abetted by my good friend, who joins me now in the studio, as he does from time to time, Victor Vigiani, executive director of Zeland News Network. Victor, how are you? Oh, hang on. Let me see. I've got the right mic here. Let me try them. Where are we? There we are. You're number four. In the back door. Number four in the back door. How are you, Victor?
3: Just great. Just great. Thanks for having uh, this opportunity once again. It always just staggers me to be able to come on and uh, discuss the, the kinds of things we talk about, and you, you sort of alluded to them this evening with all the backdoor stuff going on. I mean, when people come in my back door, I just ask them to leave, but I can't do that anymore. You cannot. <laughs> you cannot. And all of these uh, things
2: that used to be dismissed as mere paranoia uh, even a year or two ago, mm-hmm. now suddenly it's uh, very unsettling, but it's, it's sort of dawning on, on, on many of us that this is not mere paranoia. And even the, the mainstream media is slowly being dragged kicking and screaming into our sort of reality, mm-hmm. if you will. Yeah. And uh, thus, this is uh, really the subject of uh, uh, Nick Redfern's new book, For Nobody's Eyes Only – Missing government files and hidden archives that document the truth behind the enduring conspiracy theories. Always a pleasure to welcome uh, Nick Redfern to the program. He's an author, a lecturer, a journalist specializing in a wide range of unsolved mysteries, including Bigfoot, UFOs, of course, the Loch Ness monster, alien encounters, government conspiracy conspiracies, and uh, as I say, his latest book for nobody's eyes only. Nick Redfern, how are you, my friend?
4: Hey, Richard, I'm doing good, thanks. How's uh, things?
2: Well, uh, you know, it's a, good, it's a good time to be in the conspiracy business, I guess, because uh, a lot of these things are simply, uh, as I say, percolating into the mainstream media. And I, I, I was telling Victor before the show, I heard one uh, sort of uh, um, opiner in the mainstream media saying not too long ago that uh, maybe he owes us conspiracy nutters an apology because so many of the things that we talk about uh, on, the, on this program and others are, are coming true. And uh, I want to talk to you about, you know, government documents. And uh, I-, I want to start off with a definition. What do we mean by top secret uh, documents? What are the, what are the uh, let's say, the top three classifications of, of uh, classified documents?
4: Well, yeah, I mean, this is sort of a, an important area for people to be aware of when you sort of, when, I guess often, you know, phrases get banded around like top secret and, ultra top secret and all sorts of things, you know, that, um, people don't think about, they just accept, uh, you know, the, the the definition that's given. But, um, in reality, um, you know, depending on the relative nation, there are all sorts of different classifications, but they basically sort of range from top secret downwards, then you have secret and depending again on the country, you have like restricted, um, things like that. And, um, The the situation in the United States, for example, you have top secret, secret and confidential. And and contrary to popular law that you sometimes hear within conspiracy research circles, there is actually no classification above top secret. Um, You know, there's nothing, there literally is nothing above it. But what you do have are so-called special access programs where person A, person B and person C may all have the same classification clearance, top secret but this specific uh, special access program may have uh, like a specific code word or a name or terminology. And unless you have that particular clearance, you don't get to access that program or even be aware that it exists. So that's what leads sometimes people to think, well, I have a top secret clearance or this person did, but they didn't know anything about this project. So it must be of a higher clearance. I mean, technically it isn't. It's just you need that key to access it. So that's an important thing to note when somebody comes forward an alleged whistleblower and says, you know, I worked on a program that was 15 levels above top secret. It's nonsense. There's no such thing.
2: Ah, that's interesting. Have you ever seen a document stamped majestic?
4: Um, Well, I have, but I mean only within the UFO field, you know, in terms of so-called questionable documents that, you know, it's it's difficult to know their actual um, authenticity or not, you know.
2: Right. I, I wanted to ask you also the another term that we hear bandied about, and that is need to know. Mm. Uh, who has? Uh, I mean, how do you? How has it arrived at? Who has a need to know? Does the president always have a need to know?
4: Well, need to know essentially also ties in with the whole issue of special access programs and also smaller projects. You know, I mean, the way secrets are legitimately kept to preserve national security is that you don't tell everybody and his brother in one particular agency what everybody else in the agency is doing. You know, that's how secrets are, are kept. That's how national security and the defence of the nation is preserved. Uh, for example, you know, if you work for, hypothetically, uh, say Britain's MI5, which is the equivalent to the FBI, you know, you're not, if you get a job with MI5, you're not simply automatically told everything that 5 um, M- MI5 does or what project it's working on at any given time you know you're told all that you need to know to do your particular job and you know that that's as I said that's how secrets uh, work and and very often you know a project can be so deeply buried that when you talk about the president or you know people in congress they don't always know um you know and perhaps it comes out further down the line or, or sometimes it doesn't you know a project may remain hidden for years or decades until the the material's finally declassified.
2: Nick Redfern is uh, with us here on The Conspiracy Show. His new book is For Nobody's Eyes Only, Missing Government Files and Hidden Archives that Document the Truth Behind the Most Enduring Conspiracy Theories. And uh, joining us uh, in studio, uh, as he does does from time to time, our good friend Victor Vigiani, Executive Director of Zealand News. Uh, We're coming up on a break in a few minutes, but I I, want to delve into, uh, and then we'll work uh, Victor in here as well on the other side, but I want to delve into... Um, uh, the idea, the, the, the notion of sort of what's classified and what gets declassified. Uh, when did that sort of process uh, begin? I mean, was there a time uh, when all documents were declassified after a certain amount of time? Uh, and, and, and if so, when did that change? Walk us through that, that process of the, the declassified document versus classified documents.
4: Sure. Well, um, most sort of advanced uh, nations today have what are called Freedom of Information Acts. And that's something that I use quite regularly. You know, I'm not somebody who recklessly, you know, leaks. I'm not, you know, in a position to do that. But I mean, I'm not somebody on the other other end who sort of accepts leaked material or anything like that. You know, I don't get involved in all this sort of Edward Snowden, WikiLeaks stuff because that's just guaranteed to get you into big trouble. You know, what I try and do is approach what I do from the same perspective, say, a historian writing a book on the Second World War. You know, I go to government archives and check out uh, official files that have been officially and legally declassified. You know, I I don't get involved with anything uh, beyond that at all because, as I said, it's just asking for trouble. Um, Now, when you go to places like, you know, relevant archives of different agencies those documents will have been ser- uh, released through the terms of the Freedom of Information Act of varying nations. Um, in the U.S., the Freedom of Information Act was initiated in the 1960s, and essentially it allows members of the general public and the media to request access to files, um, which you know literally could date from last week if you were aware of the relevant file. And they have archivists and staff whose job it is to essentially go through the material and determine if it can be declassified in full, um, in part, or if it has to be completely withheld. Now, the, the files, um, ostensibly at least, should, regardless of classification, start to surface after 25 years. But there are additional pieces of legislation that allow for continued withholding. For example, there are a number of files still relative... To the Cuban missile crisis of nineteen sixty two that are still classified, and some of the papers on the j f k assassination of sixty three they still haven't finished being reviewed before they can become declassified so in other words, it's a bit of a gray area um but prior to the Freedom of Information Act, you know documents would would still be declassified. it was just according to the relevant agency's you know own opinion as to when they could appear, but today we have this official legislation in place.
2: Well, I, I'm told when it comes to uh, sort of the, the UFO ET arena,
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, that there was this a window during the Carter administration uh, when there was a uh, just between 1976 and let's say 79, this, this flood of information that was coming out. Uh, and then after Carter left office, uh, that sort of window of opportunity for, for researchers to access a lot of those files Uh, sort of was shut, perhaps, indefinitely. I'll get your your thoughts on that uh, when we come back. Again, Nick Redfern, for Nobody's Eyes Only, missing government files and hidden archives that document the truth behind the most enduring conspiracy theories, and that's what we talk about here on The Conspiracy Show. Back with more in a moment. Don't go away. Welcome back. Nick Redfern stays with us. And uh, his new book is For Nobody's Eyes Only, Victor Vigiani in studio, executive director of Zealand News Network, and talking about uh, U.S. uh, documents, uh, secret files. Um, And a, a, a large portion of the book obviously dedicated to sort of the UFO arena. And I was asking you before the break, Nick, about that sort of that, I guess for the UFO researchers, this was the golden era uh say the Carter administration 76 to 79 when there was this flood of of, of government documents coming uh, uh re- that were released i guess at Carter's behest relating to ufo's uh and then the that window uh closed suddenly with a change in administrations is that is that a fair assessment of what of what happened
4: um, well i i think it's more from from my perspective i can only sort of tell it as i see it is that you know what happened was in 76 um Agencies like the FBI and the CIA started to release their files because there was actually a change in the FOIA situation then and it made it easier for members of the general public to use it. So a lot of UFO researchers um, uh, applied to get the files released and the FBI's files were actually obtained by Dr. Bruce McAbee, who was the first person to get them. And the FBI declassified to him just under 2,000 pages. And, you know, contrary to what a lot of people think, it's not, you know just boring material the the material that Maccabee got you know it's packed with reports of ufo encounters involving pilots and radar reports and ufos hovering over military installations it's really good stuff and um the fbi have now put those files on their their website which is called the vault um and in the same time period the cia released a, about a thousand or so pages of theirs and um In the 1980s, the Defense Intelligence Agency released several hundred pages, which are are on their website. Um, Now, of course, you know, depending on who you ask, some people might say, well, that's just, you know, a small fraction. Uh, Other people might say that's all they've got. But um, what I would say, you know, I point out in the book that one of the important things I stress is that I don't paint the government or the agencies as the bad guys at all, because... I don't believe the really deep secrets about UFOs are hidden by specifically the FBI, the CIA, or or whoever. I think it's more of some sort of shadow government group, if you like. So in other words, I don't point the... the I think the files that the agencies have released, I think they've legitimately released what they've looked for and found. But And I think the reason there's no problem with doing that is because they aren't the people who hide in... What, you know, people are looking for, like the truth about Roswell, I think, I really do believe that's nothing to do with the government. I think it is like some shadow agency that is so incredibly well buried that everybody targets, you know, the agencies as the bad guys, and I think it's the exact opposite.
2: I, I think you're you're right, uh, Nick. I think you know maybe going back all the way to to, to, to forty seven and Truman mm-hmm. uh, had that farmed out to, to private interests. Yeah. Uh, let me
3: work uh, Victor Vigiani in here. Victor. Yeah, I just wanted to to run something by you, Nick. Uh, at what level? You, you sort of alluded to it in your um, just your previous comments. Uh, at what level and who? It always intrigues me, you know, to, to find out who. Who makes the actual decision as to what gets placed in what category? And is it sort of a, an element of governance, these people that are elected, uh, or is it military intelligence agencies, or like this shadow government that you're, that you're alluding to also? Like, where does this all get decided?
4: Do you mean the, the level of classification? Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of it is sort of down to common sense. I mean, for example, you know, nobody would want documents ever to be released on something that would reveal things like the capability of our radar systems, because you don't want hostile nations knowing how high we can track in the sky, because then they'll, then they'll fly higher, you know, and spy on us that way. Mm-hmm. So that sort of stuff, number one, should not be declassified, and number two, things like that should be classified at highly sensitive levels, so, you know, probably at top secret. But something further down the line, um, you know, that is still can have an effect on national security, but isn't critical, would fall under secret. And then something that was, you know, at the lowest level but still was something where you know, it was a sensitive issue, would fall under, say, the restricted banner. But a lot of it is just sort of common sense, you know, the things you would expect to be classified top secret, like launch codes on missile systems would obviously fall into that category. Um, So, you know, and, and, and that's usually the way it works. It's the, you know, the the related seriousness or potential seriousness dictates the classification level.
3: Would there be people in the these organisations that are beyond the government? Uh, it, it, you know, do, do they have the capacity, legitimate or otherwise, to tell elected officials, "No, you can't know that information."
4: Um, well, I don't think it's supposed to say no. You, you know, you can't know this data or, or have access to it. You know, I, I think generally what happens is that, you know, a prime minister or a they're you know, they're not Superman. They have to be briefed and be given summary briefings on what's going on in all arms of governments. And I think sometimes, you know, what happens is that they get a summary write-up or, or briefing on a particular thing, but it may not, you know, encompass the entire story. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, when the story comes out later on, then the relevant person says, well, why wasn't I told? You know, and so it's, it's kind of like a... 50-50 thing, you know, was the information withheld, or is it simply the fact that they, they can only have a brief, you know, so many briefings and a briefing has, has to be by definition brief, you know, to, to what extent they weren't told versus what could be told in the available time, you know, given everything else they're doing.
2: Dr. Stephen Greer, a UFO uh, disclosure advocate, tells the story of the uh, a Chief of Intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, getting wind of a program uh, I, I believe it was relating to some sort of back engineering of, of uh, technology recovered from a, a UFO crash site. Uh, and I think that uh, he caught wind of it through Dr. Greer. Uh, he tells a story that this, uh, while Greer was sitting in his office, uh, this um, uh, intelligence officer, head of intelligence, rather, for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, called the, the department or the agency uh, or whether it was some sort of R&D facility that was... Um, Named in this program, and uh, talk, got someone on the phone and asked to identified himself as the head of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff and asked to be read into the program. I guess, which means you know, give me the give me the the lowdown. And he was told in no uncertain terms, "You don't have a need to know," and and uh, was promptly hung up on. Does that does that happen?
4: Well, I mean, I have no personal way to know that it does happen. I've personally not come across that at all, but. Um you know, um, but although it is a fact that if you aren't written into like a special access program, then you would not get access to it. So, what I meant was, I'm not aware of it specifically. You know, in that case or directly with the UFO issue. But um, you know, if you're working on a on a program, let's say hypothetically, I don't know, tracking Russian submarines. If you're not part of that program and you ask about it, you know, you can have the door shut in your face because. Again, it, it helps preserve national security. You know,
2: my my sense of the you know, despite promises uh, that this the the Obama administration was going to be the most transparent, uh, my sense is right or wrong uh, that never have so has so much information been classified, uh, and never before has the U.S. federal government been so untransparent. Uh, it seems to me like you know everything is. Uh, uh, you know, with, with the way just look at the witness, the, the, the treatment of whistleblowers, the so people that try to come forward and, re, and, and uh, reveal information about what various spy agencies are doing to the citizens and so forth. Uh, d- to me, this is just a very distressing time uh, in, in, in terms of, um, you know, access to information uh, and, uh, and who knows what about whom and who's being tracked and, and uh, who has access to public or private records and so forth. Very distressing. What, what are your thoughts on that, Nick?
4: Well, I think, you know, one of the reasons why there's been such a, a debate and why the media is so involved is simply because, you know, the people who are aware of it, in other words, you know, it's kind of, to what extent it might have been going on earlier, I don't know, but it wasn't talked about because people didn't know about it. You know, it's it's kind of like when people say, is one government more transparent than another? Well, we ask that question Because revelations come out that beg the question or raise the question, but you know it's the only you know we wouldn't be talking about it. In other words, if a whistleblower hadn't come forward, Um, so who's to say it hadn't always been like that? That's the point I'm trying to make. Do you see what I mean? Maybe nothing's changed beyond what the the media has found out.
3: Is there any way of knowing, uh, Nick? Um, And so many documents have been released for a number of years about any number of issues. Um, I'm most familiar with with most of the UFO stuff. There obviously is other stuff out there. Uh, The the kinds of information that are, in fact, placed in the FBI vault, for example, or on the CIA's uh, list of released documents, is there any sense that some of this stuff uh, is just sort of thrown out as cannon fodder to kind of hide what's really kind of going on behind the scenes? Uh, in other words, is some of this disinformation?
4: Personally, I don't think it is. I mean, you know, again, as I said, I don't paint the, the government or the government agencies as the bad guys in this. As I said, I think it's the shadow organisations. But, I mean, for example, if you go to the FBI's website, The Vault, I mean, that's an excellent website. I, I mean, I actually only have good words for the FBI. You know, this website... They've released thousands of pages on, for example, UFOs, um, Albert Einstein, um, the the gangster era, Cold War, uh, attempts to find Russian spies, um, hundreds of files on Hollywood stars, you know, how they were watched in the 50s and why, um, things like the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Kennedy assassination, and, you know, they're all widely available in downloadable PDF form. On the FBI site. And, um, you know, in that sense, the, the FBI, as far as I'm concerned, have done a great job in revealing, you know, the historical aspects of their work. And a lot of the documents, contrary to a lot of people, think they're not, you know, summarily blacked out or whatever. They tell a really interesting history. But, you know, as I said, I investigate conspiracies, but very often I don't see official agencies at fault. You know, and I don't see the FBI at fault with their UFO files. I think they released really what they had. I don't think they held hardly anything back at all. And uh, and only the ones that were were the ones where there were legitimate um, issues, you know, that were covered by freedom of information. But the reason why I think they released them all, again, is because I don't believe the FBI is an agency that's that's hiding the truth about UFOs. You know, they were, they were on the fringe of it all.
2: Uh, you mentioned Hollywood starlets, and uh, uh, there's a chapter in the book uh, relating to uh, Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, and uh, I, 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 I'm very anxious to get your um, your, your take on, uh, you know, that the, the whole situation of what was going on at Marilyn Monroe's house and who was there and what time she died, and and of course the disappearance of the uh, the infamous red diary that yeah. she supposedly kept. Uh, what can you tell us about uh, FBI documents relating to, um, you know, what? what may have been in that red diary and, and what sure. what were the contents of various telephone conversations because it seems like uh the FBI was very interested uh before she died in who was coming and going in that house that night.
4: Yeah, well the FBI has de- has now declassified its file on Marilyn Monroe. It's been in the public domain for a, quite a few years and it's and again it's on the FBI's website, the Vault, where you can download the whole thing and it covers the mid nineteen fifties, right through to the seventies, which was, you know, a decade or so after she died. But um you know, the file was kept open because people were asking about the case and new material was coming forward. Um but the reason I mention this in the book is because the the FBI some of the early FBI documents are actually shared with the director of the C- of the CIA. And and that's actually borne out on the documents. But the CIA, when they were approached for any documents on Marilyn Monroe, they said, well, we, we don't have anything at all. Um, and that's the official story. Um, but at the very least, they should have the files that the FBI sent them, which reflect that they were sent to the CIA. But those files can't be find, found either. And on top of that, as you said, this red diary, uh, so-called diary of secrets that Marilyn Monroe kept, supposedly containing bunch of information that the kennedy brothers president uh, john f kennedy and his brother um bobby bobby kennedy the attorney general um had shared information with uh, with uh, marilyn monroe and she'd written it all up in this diary so in, in essence the diary became itself a national security issue and it actually vanished from the coroner's office um just a few days after her death in august 1962 and we don't know where it went to this day. And um, and we hear snippets now and again of stories involving the CIA in Marilyn, Marilyn Monroe's life and watching her because of her relationship with the Kennedys, etc. And there's even a highly controversial document um, which was provided in the mid-1990s to an author named Milo Spiriglio, who wrote three books on the death of Marilyn Monroe from the perspective of it being a murder rather than accident or suicide, And this is a document that talks about how a number of agencies were supposedly wiretapping Marilyn Monroe's house and her conversations and that one of the stories that was picked up um, during the conversations was supposedly how President Kennedy had sort of bragged to her that he'd seen uh, or he'd been taken to what was called a secret air force base to view things from space, which kind of makes, in some people's minds, it sort of led to the idea... You know, was it Area fifty one and did he see bodies from Roswell? Yeah. Uh, what's interesting is the documents, although some people have said it's a straightforward hoax, it actually doesn't reinforce the UFO issue because contrary to a lot of people think, it doesn't mention UFOs, doesn't mention aliens, doesn't mention alien spacecraft, doesn't mention Area fifty one. It just talks about the president being taken to a secret airbase to view bodies and craft from space. You know, and the the actual project is titled Project Moondust which was actually an official program designed to uh, recover Soviet spacecraft and, and space satellites.
2: So- All right, got to jump in here, uh, Nick. We're taking okay. a timeout. We'll come back and continue along. Uh, for Nobody's Eyes Only, Nick Redfern here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Nick Redfern is with us for Nobody's Eyes Only, missing government files and hidden archives that document the truth behind the most enduring conspiracy theories. And uh, joining us in studio, Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network. Uh, I want to ask you about a a story that caused quite a stir in the UFO community a couple of years ago when a man purporting to be the uh, entertainment liaison officer for the CIA uh, claimed that he had, uh, I guess, access to uh, something called the Historical Intelligence Collection, I believe that's the name of it, and went poking around in some drawers and uh, uh, saw some, and files, and saw uh, documents relating to uh, Roswell and other crashes, I believe. And um, after you know, witnessing this, went public and declared that, again, everything we've heard about Roswell is absolutely 100% true, and he was speaking as a member of the CIA. Uh, what can you tell us about Chase Brandon and that whole episode?
4: Yeah, well, this this is an interesting story from, from several different perspectives. Chase Brandon um, was essentially the CIA's en- entertainment liaison officer, which basically means he sort of represented the CIA, CIA's interest in Hollywood. You know, if the um, a production company wanted to make a film about the CIA, like, you know, some... Uh, conspiracy thriller or whatever they would perhaps go to the um, entertainment liaison officer to get background information if you know, to get an accurate portrayal that kind of thing but um, Brandon said that he read or saw in this uh, so called historical intelligence collection a file that was titled Roswell that was literally the only word that was on the file and he really wouldn't talk about very much what the file actually contained Beyond the fact that it you know it referred to the incident and essentially you know went beyond the official story of balloons and crash test dummies and etc um, the the story has obviously provoked a great deal of interest and it must be said in the in the UFO community a great deal of skepticism i mean for example, Kevin Randall, who's one of the sort of most fervent believers um, you know, in the existence of not just a UFO phenomenon, but the probability that UFOs crashed at Roswell, he thinks the story is nonsense. His actual word was crapola. <laughs> so he described um, Chase Brandon's story. Now, it must be admitted that there is one glaring issue in Brandon's story. The file itself was reportedly an old file, and it was titled Roswell. But the connection between Roswell itself, the place and the crash really only came out in 1980 when Charles Berlitz and Bill Moore wrote the book The Roswell Incident. A lot of people don't realise that the the actual crash site where the event occurred was on a place called the Foster Ranch in Lincoln County, New Mexico, which is actually about a two-hour drive from the town of Roswell. It's a long way away. I mean, I've been to the actual crash site, and I left Roswell where I was staying in a, in a motel there at like nine in the morning, and got to the crash site at like 11.30. You know, that's how long it takes you to get out to that crash site. So, in other words, the only reason um, the event itself has become tied with Roswell the town is because that was the nearest base where the wreckage could be taken to. The crash actually didn't occur anywhere near Roswell itself. So, in other words, for a file to be titled Roswell, for an old file, is kind of strange, you know, when... The, the actual connection itself as such hasn't been made that openly or that deeply. So, you know, that that's one of the big issues. You know, you would imagine that if it was a really old file and it related to the crash, why not talk about, you know, why isn't it titled something like Incident on the Foster Ranch, Lincoln County? You know, Roswell isn't even in Lincoln County. Um, so that that's one of the big issues as to why it would be titled Roswell, you know, when,
2: that Excellent point.
4: That is actually relatively new.
3: So. All right. Victor Vigil. Yeah, I just wanted to, to run something else by you. Um, going back just before Roswell, and it really doesn't have anything to do with, with the UFO issue at all, uh, but the first um, explosion of the the atom bomb, um, we've got some stories that I've been investigating myself, that we had a press agent, as I know his last name was Moynihan, um, a press agent spoke up and wrote an article about the actual A-bomb explosion at uh, at White Sands, and what he was told to write was that the explosion was nothing more than a munitions dump explosion which caused absolutely no damage at all. Now that's, you know, you're considering 40 million pounds of TNT exploding and then just after that Major General um, Leslie Groves, uh, high up in the whole Manhattan Project, is on record as saying that all of this talk is uh, of radiation is nothing but simply nonsense. And you get two kinds of statements made at that level, at that time, in history. And it, it, I just begin to wonder, Nick, how can we trust anything that the government or the agency officials that are putting this information out, how can we trust them to, to tell anything that's even remotely well, similar to the truth?
4: Well, I mean, I think there's one thing we need to bear in mind, you know, is that the, when those statements were made about the atomic bomb, you know, we're at war and fighting for our lives against the Germans and the Japanese. so. You know, I guess you can make the good argument that you don't. we wouldn't have wanted the Japanese or the Germans to know we'd developed the atomic bomb, so we would do our best to hide that data. You know, I mean, I might sound like I'm coming across like an anti-conspiracy thing, but, you know, I grew up in the UK where we regularly faced terrorist threats from the Irish Republican Army, the IRA. And, you know, that, and security was in place then, you know, in the Second World War. Britain had the, you know, the whatever bombed out of it by the Germans, and a lot of rules and laws and secrecy was put into place because Britain could have gone under, you -hmm. know, and I think, I mean, I may be wrong, but for me, you know, I don't see anything wrong with telling people an atomic bomb wasn't tested, because when we're at the height of war fighting someone that would want to develop it, you know, we'd want to keep them away, so you would play it down, but... You know, that's that's just my opinion.
2: Mm-hmm. All right, we're uh, heading into a break, Nick. On the other side, I want to talk about, I mean, it's one thing for the government to release documents that they have, and then there are incidents where documents and files simply go yeah. missing, which is rather convenient. And uh, you, uh, of course, mentioned being from Britain. We'll talk about a, far- a fairly famous UFO incident there. Uh, some say is only rivaled by Roswell, and that would be your Roswell, the Rendlesham UFO incident. We'll get into that and what happened to those documents when The Conspiracy Show returns after this. Stay with us. Uh, Nick Redfern stays with us uh, for a few moments yet, the author of For Nobody's Eyes Only, Victor Vigiani uh, from Zealand News Network in studio. Uh, I have to ask you about Rendlesham Forest, uh, uh, Nick, and, you know, I, I was in Rendlesham. Uh, I walked around, um, you know, East Gate with, uh, with Larry Warren and um, uh, talked with um, Jim Penniston uh, down in Phoenix, about what went what, went on in uh, in Rendlesham back in uh, over Christmas break in 1980, uh, it seemed like there were a lot of people with cameras over the course of those two or three nights. Apparently, there was a lot of film footage taken, and of course, nothing has surfaced. Uh, what can you tell us about um, you know the likelihood that um, somebody disappeared? Uh, some some pretty hmm. compelling evidence.
4: Well, yeah, there's actually a lot of evidence, uh, ironically, to suggest that evidence has gone missing in the in the Rendlesham case. Um, you know this is for people who aren't aware it's the case of this landing or a series of landings and encounters in Rendlesham forest adjacent to two military bases Bentwaters and Woodbridge. Um, one had a US contingent the other a British contingent and um, the reports of like a triangular shaped UFO in the woods and lights beamed to the ground and small beings seen well, you would imagine with something like this, a tremendous amount of documentation would have been put together. But really, other than a few documents that talk about the case and the famous report, one-page report put together by the deputy base commander, Charles Holtz that outlined the, the affair, everything was sent reportedly to the British Ministry of Defence who basically said, well, we don't think national security was compromised and essentially forgot about it. But when we look into it, we actually find... Evidence of material that is missing that shouldn't be, or it should be somewhere. For example, in uh, one of the things I talk about in the book is a little known story about how in 1988 a British um, prison officer named George Wilde spoke to Graham Birdsall, who at the time was the editor of the, Brit- the British UFO magazine. And George Wilde told um, Graham Birdsall on the record that he was aware that on the nights, of the Rendlesham encounters, which was like the 26th or 28th of December, that the British government's Home Office, which handles security matters relative to crime and things like this, um, had actually uh, planned or had standing plans in place to evacuate three prisons in the area, one of them being High Point Prison and the two other ones not too far away from Rendlesham Forest. And supposedly they were going to be evacuated reasons affecting national security, and the inference was it was somehow related to the UFO landings. And on top of that, um, there's also a story which was investigated and uncovered by Georgina Bruni, who wrote a a, a book herself on Rendlesham called You Can't Tell the People. And she uncovered a story about how supposedly a team of personnel in hazmat suits traveled out to the forest the following day after after the first event and supposedly came from Porton Down. Porton Down is the British government's installation in the south of England that handles research into things like exotic viruses and biological warfare. And they supposedly went out there and retrieved something from the forest. And questions were asked about this um, missing data on Porton and Down and also on the, um, the prison records by a man named Lord Hill Norton, who was a former uh, defense chief in Britain who had a personal interest in UFOs, and when he asked questions about this, mis- or the, the journal, I should say, he asked to see the, the prison office, the prison governor's journal, you know, that would cover the time of the Rendlesham events to see if it confirmed, you know, the prison evacuation was planned for. Well, the government grudgingly agreed to check the old archives for December 1980, and only to find that the um, logbook for December 1980 is gone. You know, which is sort of very, very suspicious. The one logbook that potentially could uh, throw light on the events and whether this evacuation did occur or was planned, I should say. Uh, conveniently got missing, and that's something we see time and again in UFO cases.
3: Yeah, I was wondering too about that because a lot of times when you get that kind of material evidence, uh, be it you know, cameras that uh, mm-hmm. or that uh, that Richard alluded to earlier, um, what I like to, to term all of that too—that's in terms of you know missing evidence and documents and witness testimony—I look at those kinds of things as converging lines of evidence. Uh, each one of those things is probably important on its own in its own right. The, the, yeah. the tape, the audio tape, for example and some of the documents. But when you put them together and when you sort of draw these converging lines of evidence, um, even with missing documents, it's quite clear that those converging lines of evidence point pretty clearly to something, um, you know, (laughs) almost, uh, you know... (laughs) bad happening in, in with the way the release of the information is going. And anybody who looks at that kind of um, those, those lines of evidence has to come to the conclusion that something's up here and there's, there's a story not being told. And I guess how do we fill those gaps in, I guess, is my question.
4: Well, that's a a good question. I mean, it's almost as if the agencies themselves don't know. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Mm -hmm. Um, A few years ago, um, some more documents surfaced, internal documents surfaced on Rendlesham. Not so much about the case, but they're actually from the British government's defence intelligence staff, where people within the DIS were speaking to each other, saying, hey, you know, we've been getting freedom of information requests for this at this from Forest event, and we've gone looking, and they actually said in the internal documents, which are actually never intended for public release, they you know, they surfaced through the Freedom of Information Act, they actually said that we've gone looking and we found a huge gap where there should be material, and one of the guys speculated to another, it seemed as if somebody was trying to bury the case. So even within the agencies, you know, there are people who don't know, and but the important thing is, it's this sort of lack of evidence, but also sort of proof of lack of evidence that, for me, that, that's sort of the thrust of the book. It's mm-hmm. not so much based on what we know, but it's where we're seeing glaring um, just material just missing. You know, I mean, a classic example as well is with uh, Roswell. A lot of people don't realise that all of the outgoing, every single outgoing my, uh, message from the Roswell Army Airfield from 1945 to 1949 cannot be accounted for every single message from that base outgoing has vanished Uh, and that's not rumor or hearsay that's official record and it surfaced when the old government accounting office which is today called the um uh, excuse me the old general accounting office today Mm -hmm. called the government accountability office they went looking into the issue of um, roswell in in 1993 to try and determine what happened back in 47 and no agency could find any records on roswell in its files um but again it was what they didn't find was all these 1945 to 49 messages and no explanation was given or could be found as to what had happened to the files where they shredded where they burned where they sent to another agency we don't know other than the fact that for all intents and purposes they're gone and you know this is very this eerily parallels the situation with roswell in britain you know the where the files are all pretty much gone on that case as well so this is what leads me to believe it's not so much the agencies themselves it's almost like some super powerful shadow group moves in and they're the ones that are sitting on it all Mm -hmm. you know otherwise you wouldn't have like these agencies saying to themselves where the hell are these files you know even they don't know where they are
2: uh Nick we've talked a lot about uh, the UFO arena here and and um the you know the book isn't just about government documents relating to UFOs and i i want to ask you about um, something relating to uh, MK Ultra, because a couple of weeks ago I had Roseanne Barr uh, on the program talking about um, MK Ultra and how it rules Hollywood, and this is something she's been talking about for decades. And uh, uh, you know, people can sort of take that information and do with it what they will. Uh, but you do talk about uh, MK Ultra uh, in the book. And I just want to crib here from from, uh, a chapter and just read this. Um, Within the annals uh, annals of research into conspiracy theories, there is perhaps no more emotive term than that of mind control. Certainly mention those words to anyone who is even remotely aware of them, and they will invariably and inevitably, and maybe justifiably, provoke imagery and comments pertaining to political assassinations and dark and disturbing official chicanery. The specter of mind control is one that has firmly worked its ominous way into numerous facets of modern society, and it has been doing so for years. Consider, for example, the following. This is, then you uh, have a quote here from uh, George, Dr. George Estabrooks, who was the chairman of the Department of Psychology at Colgate University back in the 40s. And he said, this is a very well-known quote, I can hypnotize a man without his knowledge or consent into committing treason against the United States. He went on to say 200 trained foreign operators working in the United States could develop a uniquely dangerous army of hypnotically controlled sixth columnists. Uh, What can you tell me about documents pertaining to sort of the scope of MKUltra?
4: Well, yeah, I mean, MKUltra was certainly the most well-known and famous of all the various sort of so-called mind control or mind manipulation projects over the decades um but in reality i mean there were dozens that started in sort of the immediate post war second world war era um and some of them were cancelled some of them continued and mk ultra was certainly you know the biggest and um, the sort of umbrella organisation that had various sub projects underneath it and again through the freedom of information act we actually have th- tens of thousands of pages on mk ultra which have shed a lot of light on how you know, various drugs and um, hypnotic techniques were used to see how the mind could be manipulated. But we would have had an even bigger stack of documents. But uh, as I point out in the book, um, back in the early 1970s, um, uh, literally, I mean, a massive amount, literally hundreds of thousands of pages was destroyed um, based on the orders of Richard Helms, who was the director of the CIA at the times. There was concern... That somebody on the inside was leaking uh, documents on MK Ultra and, and information and actually it did reach the New York Times they were the first one to break the story um, of the existence of MK Ultra and its scope and um, because there was concern that somebody was leaking it, a decision was taken essentially to destroy as much of the material as possible. and that might sound strange, but the reason why the documents were destroyed was because the programs essentially um, the research behind them had been completed. In other words, they were up and running. So all the historical material was perceived as being not necessarily valid or, or needed anymore. You know, when everything was up and running. So literally, um, as I said, thousands upon thousands of pages were ordered by Richard Helms to be uh, burned or shredded. You know, and obliterated. And of course, we'll never really know what was in that material. That's just literally been lost to the to history forever. But again, it demonstrates why sometimes files, you know, do get destroyed um, outside of, you know, official protocol. In this case, it was because Helms felt that somebody on the inside was releasing and leaking data, so he felt the best thing to do was to prevent the leakage, was to just destroy it all. So in other words, you have different ideas and reasons why files sometimes vanish. You know, sometimes they get hidden. Sometimes they get destroyed because somebody's fearful somebody else is going to leak them, you know
2: uh and and sometimes i mean let's be let's be honest sometimes perhaps they go conveniently they go missing because somebody's covering somebody's you know posterior
4: well that's right i mean you don't we you know we can always look at it from different ways and um or different perspectives on the on the case or the incident in question you know i think with roswell or rendlesham it's clearly been done you know to because maybe there are well not maybe but there are people somewhere that don't want this material releasing and they don't want us to know what happened at Rendlesham or at Roswell. Um, in terms of the CI and the MK Ultra thing, it was literally one man's decision. I mean, literally Richard Helms, he took the decision to, hey, you know, we're going to destroy this before any more gets leaked. So I think a lot of it depends on circumstances, situations and you know, the the scope of the project and and things like this. And, um, you know, each case is kind of, you know, on its own merit, I guess.
2: Nick Redfern, uh, for nobody's eyes only, missing government files and hidden archives that document the truth behind the most enduring conspiracy theories. And, of course, we just uh, skimmed the surface here. Congratulations on the book. Thanks for your time tonight, Nick. All right. Thanks, Richard. Good night. All right. Good night. And uh, Victor Vigiani, thank you as always. It's been a pleasure great to be here. All right. The website, richardserrett.com, your portal to The Conspiracy Show. Say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth. Just huddling here, trying to keep warm. It's... uh it's getting gray, and it's getting blustery, and it's it's one of those damp, cold evenings. I hope you're huddled by the fire or the uh, the warmth of the glow of your uh, radio. As we brace ourselves for another uh we are uh, going to delve into uh, UFO disclosure again tonight. You know, when the history of the UFO disclosure movement is uh, written, uh, and who knows when that might twenty, fifty 20, 50 years hence... Uh, an event that took place back, I think, will figure large in that text, uh, and that is the uh, citizen hearing on UFO disclosure that took place this very year back in uh, late April and early May, uh, where six uh, former U.S. Congressmen and women uh, were gathered together in a sort of a mock congressional hearing, and they sat and heard testimony over the course of several days from dozens of uh, top UFO Witnesses, and uh, we are um, going to speak with one of those former congressmen, Senator Mike Gravel, who was a two-term senator from Alaska uh, from 1969, I believe, to 1981. He, uh, he uh, was one of the co-chairs of that citizen hearing on UFO disclosure in Washington, and uh, we're just trying to connect with him now but while we wait for the senator to join us because he has some fascinating things to say uh, essentially the gist of it being that uh, we can no longer hide from the UFO ET reality and uh, we're just trying to connect with Senator Mike Gravel right now Victor Vigiani uh, from Zeeland News Network executive director was in Washington for the entire hearing sat there, met with uh, Senator Gravel and is really instrumental in getting the senator on the show. Uh, He's just ducked into the studio to see if he can raise Senator Gravel. Uh, So that's what's going to play out in the first half hour of the show, if all goes according to Hoyle. We'll get Senator Gravel on to talk about um, some of the jaw-dropping, gobsmacking testimony that he heard. Uh, which I'm, I'm guessing, based on the comments that I've heard from Senator Gravel, who's been quite vocal since the uh, the hearings wrapped up, as I say, late April, early May, uh, my sense is that it really changed the trajectory of his life. Uh, keeping in mind, this is a gentleman who uh, ran for president in 2008, uh, was considered uh, for the um, – tried to get on the uh, the, uh, the presidential ticket, I believe, in 1972 as vice president. Uh, and also was very instrumental in uh, the release of the uh, the famous Pentagon Papers into the public record back in the early 70s, at some risk to himself. Uh, also, uh, probably best known for his uh, forceful but unsuccessful attempts to end the draft during the, the, uh, the war in Vietnam. All this, uh, I say, just to sort of highlight the gravitas of Senator Mike Gravel, who again was asked by uh, Stephen Bassett, who orchestrated the citizen hearing, uh, was asked to to co-chair these mock congressional hearings and hear testimony. And this was someone who had, as the old saying goes, uh, no skin in the game, had no sort of opinion, I guess, either way concerning UFOs and ETs. And after hearing this testimony, again, quite public about um, the fact that his government, the United States government, has lied to the public, about UFOs and ETs and says we can no longer hide from the UFO ET reality. As I say, we are attempting to get uh, Senator Gravel uh, on the program. Uh, Victor Vigiani is in the other studio. So that's uh, what's in store for the first half hour. And then after that, uh, we are scheduled to speak with Linda Moulton Howe, uh, who recently joined uh, Victor on this program. Uh, Linda, of course, uh, no stranger to... um, many of you or any of you in the, uh, the UFO disclosure arena uh, has been very uh, vocal, of course, about UFO disclosure, was one of the key witnesses at the citizen hearing. So we'll hear from uh, Linda Moulton Howe a little bit later in the program. She'll react to what we're about to hear from uh, Senator Gravel. And then, uh, towards the end of the, uh, the hour, we'll hear from uh, Daniel Sheehan, who's a uh, Harvard-trained constitutional lawyer Over the last 45 years, his work uh, as an attorney, speaker, and educator has helped to expose the structural sources of injustice in the United States and abroad, and uh, also a very vocal UFO disclosure advocate. So, Daniel Sheehan, Linda Moulton Howe, coming up uh, after uh, we hear from Senator Mike Gravel, who has uh, joined us on the line. And, uh, Senator, uh, good to have you aboard. Thank you for joining us here on The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Senator Gravel, are you there? We're not hearing him. All right, listen, while we while we connect with Senator Gravel,
3: let me say hello once again to uh, Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network. How are you, Victor? Just fine. I'm hoping that we can eventually connect with the senator. I spoke with him yesterday, so we should be... Uh Ready to go in a few minutes. All right. I think
2: we had them and then we lost them. So listen, um, once again, just give us the uh, a thirty second description, if you will, of of the uh, the UFO disclosure, uh, the citizen hearing on UFO disclosure back in late April, early May. Yeah,
3: essentially, it was five days um, of testimony by approximately forty witnesses who demonstrated that they had uh, the capacity to provide thirty hours of testimony in front of a panel of six. Former congressional leaders, one of whom was a senator, Senator Gravel, who will speak to this evening, and some of the uh, the testimony that was given by these uh, individuals was extremely provocative, and most of the uh, the Congress uh, persons that were on the panel in the Washington National Press Club were very skeptical initially about what they were going to hear and about the UFO ET issue in general, but by the end of it, each one of them did a one hundred eighty degree turn and became convinced that. The information they were hearing was was true now you you met uh, with the senator did you have, did you not have lunch with him? No, no, I actually I just spoke with him very briefly after two or three of the sessions. Um, I did have lunch with uh, Merrill Cook, uh, one of the one of the panelists. Um, but I had brief discussions with with the uh, Senator just after uh, this, this session that he actually chaired on I think it was Wednesday he chaired the session yeah.
2: and and then he uh, just to give people
3: sort of the backstory mm-hmm. of how this program came together tonight, he reached out to you. Did he not email or call you? Well, actually, I sent an email to him several months ago uh, a long time ago i 'm trying to think now just May. it was probably in June when I sent an email to him and uh, then I thought all was lost. It was no, there was no hope to ever. But then eventually he did call me um, one day. I was downstairs doing some research, and eventually uh, he did call me. And we, he, I said, listen, I think we need to talk on the radio about this. Would you be willing to come forward? And he said, well, by sure, I will. So. All right. And
2: just to to let people know, Mm -hmm. Tim Spreen in in the other studio working uh, feverishly to try and reestablish contact. We had contact with uh, Senator Gravel on his cell phone, Mm -hmm. and then suddenly uh, he's obviously not there. So uh, while we're waiting for him, uh, let me give you a sense. I I, I mentioned off the Mm top that um, uh, based on what I've heard from Mm -hmm. the senator since the hearing, it sounds like it – am I overstating it? That it has maybe changed the trajectory of his life?
3: I think that's a fair assessment, yeah. It really would be something that he's, um, he's a, a political figure who I don't think expected to be able to do this this late in his life. And uh, he actually heard information, and he was one of the most vocal at the time, who was really saying, listen, we've got to release those files. There's something very, very important going on here. So, um, and then after that, he was uh, convinced that he would go out and speak more about this publicly, which he has, in fact, done. He's speaking more publicly than any of the other uh, Congress people.
2: Well, he's about to speak publicly uh, right now here on The Conspiracy Show. And uh, again, uh, a great pleasure to have Senator Mike Gravel on The Conspiracy Show. Senator, are you there?
1: I'm here now, and I'm sorry for the technical mess-up.
2: <laughs> That's quite all right. It's good to have you with us. And uh, Richard Serrett here, and also, of course, uh a gentleman that you know, uh, Victor Vigiani joining me in studio. Uh, say hello to Victor.
1: Great. Hi, Victor.
2: Good to have you on, Senator. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Senator, let me, uh, let me begin by asking you, um, were you at all concerned when you entered into this, um, when you were invited to, to, to co-chair, uh, this mock congressional hearing, um, you know, how it might reflect on your, you know, rather impressive, you know, legacy that you've established over the, over your, your political career. Was that ever, was there any hesitation, uh, or any, I don't know, anxious moments when you were deliberating whether or not to accept Stephen Bassett's invitation?
1: Uh, there was no, there was reflection, but there was no hesitation once I had, uh, straightened out my travel schedule, which I had a conflict at the time, and I straightened it out in favor of the, of the, of the hearing. Uh, now I well knew that, uh, that a lot of people who buy into the ET phenomenon, uh, have, uh, you know, have been, considered a little bit off track, but uh, this hasn't happened to me as yet, and uh, I've been concerned about 9-11, and I've followed that. I've been outspoken in that regard. I have no trouble being outspoken with respect to the extraterrestrial phenomena that has been visiting the planet for some time.
2: How how would you characterize your your views on the UFO ET issue prior to being invited to co-chair the panel by Stephen Bassett?
1: Prior to being invited, and when I was invited and they agreed, they sent me a, quite a number of books and papers to read. Uh, prior to that time, I, I had not really focused on the UFO as an issue uh, to make my mind up one way or the other. It was there, I was knowledgeable about it like any other citizen, nothing more than that. And so after reading and preparing for the hearing, by the time I went to the hearing, I was convinced by the uh, information that I had prepared myself with that there was no question that there was uh, a, a ET presence uh, in the world, that this phenomenon was real. And of course, at the hearing, we had testimony uh, from over 40 NYCSER, very good. as a result of that, all it did was just block
2: oh we're, we're we're cutting out uh, uh senator um i'm not sure if you can still hear me
1: yeah i can hear you ah, can you hear me that's a, a that's a little better that's
2: a little better yes so so the gist of what you were, were saying was that um uh, the, the material that you were given uh, prior to arriving i guess in washington for the hearing had sort of uh, what prepared and convinced you that this issue was certainly worthy of further exploration and discussion
1: oh no questions Uh, But it also convinced me that there was uh, an extraterrestrial presence uh, that was visiting our planet. Uh, And I personally hold the view that it would be the height of human arrogance to think that we are the only sentient being within the crossroads. So uh, with that particular view, now it becomes the details of what's involved in this
2: regard. All right, we're uh, going to head into a break. Uh, If you could uh, hold on, uh, Senator. And uh, we'll come back and, uh, and, and sort of work through some of the more compelling testimony that you heard uh, during the okay, citizen I, hearing.
1: Yeah, At the break, I'm going to go into uh, my apartment uh, because we're just coming into the driveway now.
2: All right. So, we'll establish so contact on the landline. Uh, that would be terrific.
5: Yeah, All right. That's what we'll do.
2: All right, okay. Senator, you stay where you are and we'll be back. Uh, Victor Vigiani in studio from Zealand News Network. Senator Mike Gravel on the Citizen Hearing on UFO Disclosure. Back with more in a moment here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. If you're just joining us, we have Senator Mike Gravel, who, a former uh, two-term senator for the state of Alaska, who was uh, co-chair at the Citizen Hearing on UFO Disclosure, which took place in Washington back in late April and early May. Uh, and uh, Senator Gravel uh, joins us uh, once again. And Thank you for this. Now, Senator Gravel... Uh, before I turn you over to, uh, to Victor Vigiani, who has many questions, I'm sure, uh, I just want to launch right into uh, some of the testimony that, uh, that you heard over the course of the, uh, the, the hearings. Uh, could you give us, I guess, the, the pivotal moment for you uh, that maybe, I guess, sort of nailed it shut or, or, or confirmed what you had been, you know, starting to suspect given the, uh, the information that you had regarding UFOs? Was there a pivotal moment in terms of the testimony? Yeah,
5: that pivotal moment took place before I got to Washington, uh, from reading the information that was sent to me. I about 10, 12 books were sent to me. So, uh, I, that's when the pivotal moment. Now, there were several testimonies that I thought were absolutely fantastic, uh, in their revelation. Uh, one was, I was so impressed with Paul Hellert, uh, from Canada, who had been the defense minister under three prime ministers and one of them was Pierre Trudeau, and I was very friendly with Pierre uh, at the time. And so Paul and I sort of, because my parents are from Canada, so we gravitated together, and his testimony in the book he wrote was just fantastic. There was one other that all the, I did not find any of the testimony Uh, Wanting, in other words, it was they were very reasonable, credible people that were testifying. Most of them were military officers and uh, and and PhD academics, but there was one person that I was very convinced by, uh, and that was uh, the sergeant uh, in Britain who went up to uh, one of these hovering crafts and ran his hands across the edge of it uh, and uh and i thought that that one was courageous on his part and two very credible for a person at his level uh of testimony and uh, there were others uh the uh of course uh the 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 son of the uh name escapes me at this moment uh, he's, jesse marcel jr uh, he's, yeah and he has since deceased, and I uh, saw his daughter's n- daughter not too long ago, uh, and she was kind enough to advise me of his passing. Victor Vigiani, go
3: yeah, ahead. Um, it's great to have you with us, Senator. Uh, it's no surprise to you that... Um, you know what happened in your in your uh, I guess the the work that you did in trying to understand this concept, but it is no doubt a surprise to a lot of other people, both in Washington and even some of your colleagues, who former senators or Congress uh, congressmen throughout the. Um, throughout the country, they must have been surprised that you took uh, on this issue, first of all, and not only take it on, but also become convinced that we are, in fact, as you stated earlier in, the, in this interview, that we are being engaged and visited by off-world civilizations. Uh, what do you think the political impact of your involvement and your stated provocative involvement uh, in this w- will be, in not only you know, now, but in the future? How will it politically unravel, do you think?
5: I, I think it will be. Uh, uh, it will have some impact. What, but more in the future. I think it will have probably more impact uh, after I've gone to my greater reward, and I'm, I'm 83 right now. Uh, but, but as far because I've been controversial, and so a lot of members uh, do not want to buy into uh, the kind of controversies I've been involved with, although. Historically, there's no one that believes that that uh, Vietnam was not a terrible, horrible mistake. And that's, of course, what we were trying to, to prove back then during its occurrence. So in answer to your question, uh, it's very difficult for me because I don't associate uh, with members of Congress, sitting members of Congress. Uh,
3: in fact, there's probably only two or three uh, that, are,
5: that were there when I was there.
3: Do you think that eventually um, the kinds of um, evolutionary understandings that you will um, no doubt discover in the future, depending on how much more work you do on this uh, at what level will you be ramping up any of your uh, conclusions about this this whole this whole thing because obviously you can 't just sort of sit still with it i've been involved with this for thirty five years, and uh, it's gotten it gets into you it it uh, it gets to to the very core of your being. How do you think that that um, evolutionary understanding of, uh, will get to your core of being, in, and what more could you do or will you do with respect to getting this issue out in the forefront?
5: Well, it's already at the core. Uh, two two areas that I equate together in this regard, which are totally been subverted by the in, lack of transparency in government, and that's the uh, 9 which I feel is an inside job, and of course the ET phenomena, which I think is the most important issue uh, concerning—not facing, but concerning—the uh, planet, concerning our civilization. And so uh, I know what I've been doing. Uh, I've already appeared on two uh, uh, two uh, interviews, uh, one for a a movie and. California that uh, a couple of weeks ago I went down there to tape uh, a half segment and then earlier than that I had taped another segment uh, for another uh, a documentary. So excuse me I'll make myself available uh, to any request in this regard like I am right now doing with this uh, with this interview. Uh, I just think it's important to permeate uh, the knowledge uh, that I have, or let's say more the belief, because I think there's a lot of people that have a lot more knowledge uh, than I have. And of course, in going over a number of the books that were sent me, uh, at my age, you have a tendency to, to learn something and to forget it unless it's brought back to your attention. So I will be responsive to any request in the future, uh, to participate in a discussion on this uh, subject, because I personally believe that this extraterrestrial presence is monitoring our planet, hopefully, uh, with the hope that we will mature ourselves to not destroy the planet. And of course, that possibility exists through two areas. Uh, one would be the uh, the slow d- demise with the environmental issue, and the other would be the rapid
2: suicide at the hands of a nuclear uh, conflagration. Senator Mike Gravel uh, joins us, former two-term senator for the state of Alaska, uh, who uh, co-chaired the recent uh, citizen hearing on UFO disclosure in Washington uh, back uh, in the spring. You mentioned um, the Right Honorable Paul Hellyer, uh, Canada's defense minister and also a deputy prime minister. Uh, And uh, he, of course, you know, talks about the, 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 the his personal journey and how he read Philip Corso's book, The Day After Roswell, uh, and and happened to uh, speak with some, I believe, unnamed uh, U.S. military personnel, high ranking, who confirmed for him that everything in Corso's book was, was, was true, is true. I'm wondering if you've had similar conversations uh, with uh, former or current military uh, type people regarding this issue. No,
5: I haven't, and one of the reasons is I'm very outspoken against the military-industrial complex and the control that they have over our civilization, our society, uh, both in coups with with Wall Street or, let's say, the financial interests that rule our society. Uh, And so to answer your question briefly, no, I don't have any contacts in those areas, and I I don't choose to develop them.
2: All right. Could you share another key uh, moment of, of of testimony that that uh, sticks out in in your in your mind? Uh, the the one
5: uh, which I've now uh, have come, I did make an investigation further on this, and I I forget the PhD academic's name. Uh, he's written a book, and uh, it was in reference to uh, either somebody from Lockheed or Grumman uh, who, in his retirement, made the statement. That we now have the technology to take ET home, the reference being that with the materials that we picked up, they've been able to re-engineer uh, up the up the scale uh, to 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 re- duplicate these uh, materials. I don't think that's the case. Now this uh, this academic felt it was, and had put out a book with certain formulas on how to do it. Uh, the whole issue is one of energy. How they could have the energy to propel uh, these vehicles, uh or the flying saucers, or what have you, so that they can travel at unbelievable speeds, and make right-hand turns at unbelievable speeds, and to recognize that anybody who's from a uh, another galaxy who's observing us had to travel at least thirty-seven thousand light years. Well, anybody that can do that. Uh, has, has developed an energy system far, far beyond our, our understanding or capability. And so when this, we got this testimony, uh, Oreo's hearsay, that this, uh, CEO had said that, well, we can take ET home. I don't think we can take ET home. I don't think we've developed, uh, this knowledge. Uh, to a level now there's another conspiracy theory that yes we have developed this knowledge uh, we can do this but we don't want to share this energy information with the planet because it would change everything economically uh as we as we presently operate under the capitalist system i don't necessarily buy into that that particular thought but there's no question that uh, the the people that are observer, observing us have a level of knowledge, uh, a level of maturity and uh, scientific knowledge and and uh, psychological maturity that we don't even begin to touch. Uh, and my my guess is that they will sometime so at some point want to make official contact. But they don't want to do it right now because we're not mature enough to handle it as a civilization.
3: Before I let you go, I do want you to comment on this whole national security issue very quickly, if you could, before we leave you, uh, regarding the nuclear shutdowns that we heard from Captain Robert Salas and these craft hovering over installations and shutting down our nuclear missiles of trillions of dollars of hardware that just won't work if these UFOs are around. (laughs) Uh, What message would you give to anyone who's listening right now? And I'm going to guess that there are some people beyond just our regular audience Uh, perhaps in Washington or in the Pentagon that are listening to this conversation right now. What would you have to say to our defense department, your defense department, about the nuclear installations being shut down by unknown craft?
5: Well the reason for the level of security uh, in the government which is uh, initiated uh, and promulgated by the military is that they don't want to show uh, the level of incompetence that they have. Uh, the, you know, people say, "Well, you know, they're keeping a lot of secrets." Well, one of the reasons for keeping secrets is you don't want to show how dumb you are. And the evidence that we received, and it was from testimony from people in the bunkers who were operating the missiles, that whenever uh, a, a UFO hovered above uh, these missile silos, that the entire electrical system went out, and that the missiles were useless. And so, for for the uh, for the military to be in a position. Uh, where the trillions and trillions of dollars that we spent on war making uh, are not operable uh, when they're faced with an extraterrestrial presence is not something that they want to be part of. And so the only defense they have is they make off it doesn't exist. And that's essentially what you're getting in the United States, whether it's from the White House or the Pentagon. Uh, they don't have any information to share with the American people. We've done better with France and South American countries in getting information from these other countries than we have with our own supposedly uh, transparent democracy.
2: Uh, Senator, uh, give us a, an assignment uh, for those people listening. Uh, you know, w- w- What should we take away from this and what should we do? What I think they need to take away from this,
5: there's just a bevy of books out there. And I would start with Paul Helliard's Book. Uh, I don't have the title in front of me, but there's just a whole, you just get on on uh, uh, YouTube. There's a lot of uh, film that's been done on the subject. I uh, just yesterday was watching a program that was done. Uh, I'm not sure if it was Frontline or another, but uh, there's, there is a wealth of information out there, uh, and all you've got to do is just spend a little bit of time informing yourself of this, uh, if you really want to uh, come away with a view as to how bad we're being governed uh, in light of what's facing us as a civilization.
2: Uh, any any uh, um, a parting thoughts or messages, uh, or a message rather, uh, to any members of the mainstream media who might be listening to this program? Uh, and, and of course, you know, we know... Yeah, there's one that I'm always fond of and whenever I lecture to students,
5: and that is question authority... You know, we all we all defer to authority, assuming that they know more than we know. I got to tell you, from having visited the highest levels of government, I can assure you that the leaders do not necessarily know any more than what the Irish citizen knows.
2: Well, uh, Senator Gravel, I uh, really appreciate your time uh, tonight, and uh, I, I must commend you for um, uh, you know for coming forward and and speaking uh, so publicly about this. Thank you. Thank you very much, and I'm sorry for, for the technical difficulties we had at the beginning of the program. Not at all. Senator Mike Reval, thank you. Listen, we are um, just a, a moment away here from a timeout. Uh, time when we come back, uh, Linda Moulton Howe uh, will be with us. Uh, she, of course, one of the key witnesses in the uh, citizen hearing on UFO Disclosure. She'll give us her thoughts on uh, what we just heard from Senator Gravel, and then a little bit later, uh, Daniel Sheehan will be with us, Harvard-trained constitutional lawyer, uh, no less. Uh, and also, UFO Disclosure Advocate will weigh in with his, with his thoughts, and of course, Victor Vigiani in studio from Zeeland News Network. The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Uh, Welcome back. We uh, just finished our conversation with Senator Mike Gravel, who presided over, or rather uh, co-chaired, the uh, Citizen Hearing on UFO Disclosure, which took place back in uh, April, late April, early May of this year, uh, shared with us some of the more poignant uh, bits of testimony that he heard, Uh, and uh, we are now joined uh, by... a a noted UFO disclosure advocate who's uh, dedicated her documentary film, television, and radio career uh, to productions concerning not only science, medicine, and the environment, but also the UFO ET issue. And she, of course, was one of the key uh, witnesses at the citizen hearing, and she's also uh, the recipient of the 2010 Paradigm Research Group uh, Courage in a Journalism Award. Linda Moulton Howe, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Uh Linda, are you there? Who are operating the missiles were operating All right, I think Linda is uh, still she was there. All right, she's listening. I think she's listening back to the um the um interview that we had earlier with uh, Senator Gravel. So listen, why don't we um, let her go for now, try and reestablish, contact him if you could. Now, uh, Victor, just l- let me get your, sure. your feedback yeah. to uh, what Senator Gravel said. Let's just recap what he said.
3: Well, essentially, uh, he's, he's indicating that the government, as he views it, and he's a pretty, um, he's the kind of individual who does challenge government as a history, uh, as, a, as a political figure shows, um, he is very clear that we're not being governed uh, in, in a way that allows people to find out the truth. And he said this to me a number of times in my conversations with, her early, with him earlier. Yeah,
2: above and beyond the UFO, each, of course, just yeah, in general.
3: This is the whole ball of wax we're talking about, that the level of governance is going on is only telling part, part of the story. Now, um, the question that I asked him towards the end there, in, in terms of the uh, the nuclear facilities, I mean, that's pretty important that the national security issues surrounding that are not being paid attention to by people like the Pentagon. They know that it's going on. They know these missiles have been shut down, but there's absolutely no dialogue or discourse about it. So, I mean, are they trying to prove that they can't do anything about this or what?
2: All right. uh, We are now joined by Linda Moulton-Howe. Linda, thank you for joining us. How are
6: you? Thank you very much. It's been very interesting to hear uh, Senator Gravel. I was there in Washington, and we uh, had, I think one of the best combination of people who had military or science backgrounds in Washington, myself being an investigative reporter, having interviewed a lot of people, I was very impressed with those five days that were brought together, and I am uh, very uh, pleased to hear Senator Gravel saying that he is now convinced What I have uh, been told by law enforcement for uh, more than 30 years that uh, creatures from outer space are interacting with this planet and our government has known about it since World War II. And I think that a mistake was made when they decided in World War II to have a policy of denial, a strict policy of denial. And one of the most interesting uh, sort of relevant relationships to the interview that you just did is a series that I have been working on for the last week or so, having to do with brand new information about an abduction of a security guard at Ellsworth Air Force Base in the fall of 1977. And I did a coast radio broadcast Thursday to Friday with a man who was there at the base working in uh, the support of the Minuteman missiles at Ellsworth and knew, along with many other people in both the uh, aerospace mechanic side as well as the security guards, that they were having all kinds of interactions with red glowing or orange glowing disks that could bring down all of their electronics. And in this case, this is brand new. I called Robert Salas to see if he'd ever heard of it. There was an abduction of a security guard from a road at what is called Cactus Flats, where Delta-9 was when Ellsworth was uh, the largest probably nuclear missile site that the United States had in the early 70s. And that the security guard, uh, the disappearance and the missing time and all of that was known to this uh, missile mechanic as... Uh, being a story that was told by a Colonel Klink, this is what they called him, at an astronomy gathering in Rapid City so that it was talked about in a public setting. Well, when I did the interview with the man who had worked in uh, ballistic missile maintenance, he uh, had never uh, talked with anybody else who knew anything about it. I did the show and... Afterward, I get a email from a man who said I know all about the Colonel Klink character and this abduction. I talked with them, uh, him on Saturday. I was able uh, Saturday to do an interview with a master sergeant who was involved in the investigation, and I will be posting that on Tuesday at my news website, earthfiles.com. And where all this leads, this is... These are legitimate stories of people, in this case, abducted nuclear missiles being able to be shut down by UFOs, disks, and that these are, from the inside, they knew that they were dealing with technology that had capabilities that we do not have to this day, and that had to do with Boeing testifying that the, the presence of these craft could bring down our Minuteman missiles one every second, and that this was considered to be impossible, the technology to do that was not understood. And here we're hearing more today in October 2013. And when I have done this interview with the man who knew a great deal more about this abduction, he said that they they had... People who were in even higher authority than he, who were going out in pickups in Jeeps on a regular basis because the UFOs, the unidentified flying objects, the uh, technology from someplace else, on a somewhat regular basis is the way he put it, were coming and interfering with the Minuteman missiles at uh, Ellsworth, at at Minot. And add, uh, the, uh, it's called, uh, it's the one that's EF. In, uh, in South, or it's Wyoming and Nebraska in that area.
2: Linda, I've got, to, I've got to jump in here because we're just about out of time. Uh, listen, we're going to take a quick time out. When we come back, I just want to get a very quick comment from you about what it means to have a former Senator uh, Mike Gravel now in your corner or those in the UFO disclosure community. We'll uh, take a time out, come back. A quick comment from Linda Moulton Howe, still awaiting. Daniel Sheehan will join us as well. Victor Vigiani in studio from Zealand News Network. Back with more of the conspiracy show. Don't go away. Linda Moulton-Howe is uh, with us, uh, earthfiles.com, the website, of course, and uh, she knows stranger to uh, the UFO disclosure uh, movement, uh, documentary filmmaker, television radio uh, um, professional who's dedicated uh, a large part of her professional career to the UFO ET uh, issue. Now, Linda, just a, a quick comment yeah. uh, from you on what it means to have someone with the gravitas of a Senator Mike Ravel
6: in your corner. What it says to me is that the substance, the content that was presented in those five days at the citizens' hearing in uh, Washington at the National Press Club was substantive enough to take a man who had been a sitting senator and who was neutral at the beginning. And by the fifth day, he came up to me and he shook my hand. And Senator Gravel said, Linda, the content here." is so strong, it should be presented to the world. And it was Senator Gravel who said to me and several others that what we did in Washington should be done in some other kind of a forum that would be completely international, taking advantage of the web and being able to show all countries somehow through translations everything that we did in Washington, which I think is a very, very important idea. And tonight he mentioned Ben Rich, Ben Rich was the director of Skunk Works at Lockheed. And it was Ben Rich who, near his death, said the following... We already have the means to travel among the stars, but these technologies are locked up in black projects, and it would take an act of God to ever get them out to benefit humanity. Anything you can imagine, we already know how to do, and he's what Ben Rich is referring to is back engineering of extraterrestrial technology. And then he said... We now have the technology to take E.T. home, which means going from Earth into the stars using this extraterrestrial technology. And he said, no, it won't take someone's lifetime to do this. And he goes on to talk about what it is that they have learned about the physics of this universe from what we've all been told is extraterrestrial technology. This is what Army Lieutenant Colonel Philip J. Corso, in his book, The Day After Roswell, was saying is that he had firsthand knowledge about the back engineering of extraterrestrial technology when he worked for General Arthur Trudeau in the Pentagon. And that is the truth. That is where we are. It's all been hidden under a policy of denial since World War II. And Senator Gravel tonight and in Washington is saying, you have presented enough substance, meaning those of us who were there, to say that I now am convinced that non-human intelligences are interacting with this planet and people as important as Ben Rich at Lockheed Skunk Works Said th- that before he died, and we have to break this policy of denial.
2: Linda Moltenhow, I really appreciate your time tonight. Earthfiles.com, the website. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Uh, Victor Vigiani, uh, let's welcome one more uh, before the evening is through, and uh, Daniel Sheehan is a uh, Harvard-trained con- constitutional lawyer over the last 45 years. His work as an attorney, speaker, educator has helped to expose the structural sources of injustice in our country and abroad, protect the fundamental and inalienable rights of our world's citizens, and elucidate an inspiring and compelling vision for the direction of our human family. His dedication to his vision and work has put him at the center of some of the most important legal cases and social movements of our lifetimes, and that, of course, would include the UFO ET issue. And uh, a pleasure to welcome Daniel Sheehan to The Conspiracy Show. Daniel, how are you?
7: I'm fine. Thank you, Richard. It's nice to be here.
2: And uh, say hello, of course, uh, to uh, Dan- uh, to uh, Victor Vigiani Victor. from Zealand News hey, Network.
5: Hey, Victor, how are you?
2: Not too bad, Danny. Good to have you with us. you <laughs> great. Uh, Daniel, we had uh, some technical difficulties off the top with yes, uh, Senator you know. Graval, so I'm not sure how much of that you you were able to hear. Um, yeah,
7: no, I heard I heard the whole thing.
2: All right. Well, what, what um, you you were there in Washington, uh, and I'm not sure uh, to what extent you were able to uh, to speak, uh, you know, privately away from the hearings with Senator Graval. But just give us some insights in, into uh, uh, who, who this man is, and and um, I guess how he was transformed over the course of the hearings.
7: Well, it, it's interesting. Uh, I'd I'd known Mike before because I had been chief counsel for the United States Jesuit headquarters in Washington D.C. for ten years. Well, right during the period when Michael was there, and I was the legal counsel for one of the legal counsel for the New York Times when we published the Pentagon Papers, and I was in the middle of the decisions to to decide to publish those papers when uh, Mike Gravel, a senator, got up on the floor of the Senate and began to read from them uh, into the public record. So I've known Michael from, for a long time and I know that his his influence inside that group of Congress people. He was the United States Senator that was there in April and in May uh, back in Washington and there were four other members of Congress that were there and it was clear that they were they were hearing information which if they had Uh, been able to hear that information publicly while they were actually sitting as members of Congress, either the House or the Senate, that it would have been clear that this would have convinced them that this is information that is being concealed uh, by the executive branch and even by potentially some of the people in the Intelligence Committees uh, of the United States Congress. But more likely, it's the executive branch that is even refusing to let members of Congress anywhere know about this because it is perhaps the most closely held secret uh, in the entire United States government.
3: Do you think, Danny, that, um, and I'm, I don't want to be, sound like I'm naive about this, because I'm not really totally familiar with how the inside workings of the, of the executive branch work, but do you have any sense that that people um, in that level of government, or even in the intelligence agencies, are, are even paying attention to the fact that uh, someone like Gravel came forward and did what he did? Is there any sense that you have that they... Well, it's, you know, it's
7: interesting. There's... There's, there's such a, a full-scale operation of ridicule that's been established inside the executive branch, and we know that uh, because there are memos that have been obtained. Uh, Richard Dolan, in his you know wonderful two-volume set of uh, documents that have been extracted from the United States government called UFOs in the National Security State, which everyone listening should get a hold of, and just look at, look at what the actual documents from inside the government itself has revealed about the fact that they knew that this was an extraterrestrial presence, that they were, in fact, assigning people to go out and discredit uh, anybody from Congress or anybody in any representative government positions or any private positions in the country to ridicule them and try to destroy their reputation if, in fact, they had had an opportunity to come into possession of information showing that this extraterrestrial presence was real. So that uh, his his courage and the courage of the other uh, four Congress people who came forward and participated in, in uh, April and May uh, in these hearings has been important. And virtually every single one of them came from a position of thinking that this was uh, just a kind of a crackpot, loony kind of uh, position uh, to discovering that there was absolutely credible, solid information from very uh, credible sources that in any objective uh, trier of fact would come to conclude generated, at, l- at least in their mind, a high probable cause to believe that this information was being concealed by the United States government.
3: You, ra- you so raise a that's, really good that's point. Quite a passage yeah. You raise a really good point. You say that in a court of law, um, I'm wondering: is, is there any way that this more information coming forward, or however um, this stuff leaches into the into the uh, lower levels of government and moves itself up? Do you think that the judiciary in uh, in um, in the in the, the three branches, the legislative and the executive, has any role to play in trying to figure out constitutionally why people should know about what's going on? Uh,
7: not, not not for the next. 15 years or so, Richard, the the campaign that's been undertaken by the reactionary Mm -hmm. element in the Republican Party uh, over the past 30 years to stock the entire federal judiciary with members of the Federalist Society, this extreme right-wing reactionary group uh, who are completely determined to allow the government to conceal behind the veil of national security anything they choose to do. Uh, is not in the foreseeable future going to play any kind of significant role in breaking into this, uh, this area of secrecy. The, the, the judicial branch right now, including uh, a solid four constant members of the United States Supreme Court, are locked down on this national security issue. And this issue of the existence of an extraterrestrial intelligence and the fact that they come and go on our planet in these, these vehicles Uh, is, as I said, the most closely held national security secret in the entire United States government. So the the judicial branch has shown in the last 25 years absolute deference to the executive branch to allow them to conceal anything they choose uh, and to not recognize the constitutional rights, the fundamental constitutional rights of citizens. They've cut away our right of standing to bring issues before the federal judiciary. They're a, a matter of high interest and importance to the public interest. They don't, they don't believe the judiciary to be the proper place to seek refuge. They think you have to go into the electoral realm. And, of course, they in the Democratic Party and the reactionary Republican Party have totally gerrymandered the districts now so that it's very difficult to unseat any of those people that are in office now. So the, I, don't, I don't think we should give people the false impression that the judicial branch is going to be open in the mm-hmm. next decade or more to help us. What we have to do is organize among the citizenry given access to the, to the Internet, given access to the communication system that we have with each other now, the kind of uh, video technology that we have with our cell phones, to be able to gather information and put it up onto the Internet where we can all share it. Just go past these people, go past the people who, who have put themselves into a position of blocking uh, information to the people and just don't rely upon them anymore. Uh, they've lost the confidence of the American people for the most part. So, we need to mobilize and reestablish a governing coalition among our own people that demand the truth on important issues such as this. Uh, and a point, I think that's an important movement.
2: A point taken, Daniel, about you know, sort of doing an end run against or around the, um, the status quo. But uh, I'm wondering if, uh, you know, granted that Senator Graval is a former United States Senator, are there sitting members uh, of the House of Representatives or in the Senate? Uh, that you have identified that might be willing to take a cue from former Senator Gravel and maybe make that next step and come out and and and, or is it a lost cause
7: well not not a lost cause but at the the present time it's not very likely richard as you as you can see the present the present structure of the the executive branch and the legislative branch are in this extraordinarily locked down mode right now where they're, they're refusing to deal with some of the most pressing issues on the planet. They won't deal with the issue of global climate change. They won't substantially limit the ability of the, the powerful petroleum industry to pump you know, millions of tons of sludge into the atmosphere and the environment every year. They won't do this because they're being basically paid for by the major corporations. Since Citizen United, the United States Supreme Court decision written by Justice Roberts, Uh, they now are allowed to exercise their alleged First Amendment right to put in as much money as they choose into the electoral process. So they purchase these congresspeople and senators, and they are not ever going to let any any information come out about the existence of an alternative propulsion system and energy system that is going to basically render useless not only their entire petroleum industry but also their private nuclear power industry so that they're they're not going to allow something like this to take place what they're going to try to do is they're going to try to use their control over the tools of the national security state to suppress this information until such time as they have gotten such complete control over it that they can come to own it and that's what they're doing and so that there's a, a major campaign going on to develop this technology and to make it available for an extremely elite narrow portion of the population, that same 1% that owns everything else. And uh, that's what they're trying to do now.
2: Daniel, we unsadly, we're out of time. Listen, uh, I'd like to extend an invitation for you to come back and join us for the full hour sometime real soon. Would you be good for that? Surely.
7: I'd I'd be happy to do that, Richard.
2: Daniel Sheehan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Victor Vigiani, thank you as always. You're most welcome. It's been a an very interesting evening. Well, congratulations on uh, pulling this uh, wonderful program together.
3: Something that you just have to do. We, right. we have to do.
2: Thank you, Tim Spreen. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light, what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.